years ago that there are 35 million laws in the world. You take all the countries, all the governments, they compiled the laws and rules that the different countries have, and there's roughly 35 million laws in the world that are all basically trying to reinforce what the Bible has listed in these Ten Commandments. Uh, over the past few weeks, we've been marching through the book of Exodus, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And right now we find ourselves in Exodus chapter number 20, which is commonly referred to as the passage on the Ten Commandments. And uh, so what we're going to look at today, and if we were to take our message this morning and sum it up into one singular statement, it would simply be this, that we should obey God and we should follow God out of gratitude rather than out of guilt. I'm going to say that one more time. We should obey God out of gratitude rather than out of guilt. Sometimes when we talk about the Ten Commandments, we get this idea that, well, you know, I lean into them, I follow these, because if I don't, I'll feel really guilty, I'll feel really bad. And yet, God wants us to lean into His laws. He wants us to lean into His will, not because we feel guilty, but rather out of a deep sense of gratitude for everything that He's done for us, recognizing that His will and His path for our life truly is what brings about the greatest blessing. So in review, over the past few weeks, we saw that the first four commandments had to deal with our relationship to God. They were what we might refer to as vertical in nature, commandments one through commandments four. Then commandments number five through commandments 10 are what we would say are horizontal in nature. They have to do with our relationship to other individuals, our relationship to our neighbors, our relationship to our family. And so we see these vertical commandments and then we see these horizontal commandments. And this morning, we're going to look at the three final commandments found in this passage that are really these final horizontal commandments, all right? So we're going to look at these today. If you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to go to Exodus chapter number 20, verses number 15. Exodus chapter number 20, verse number 15. They'll throw these up on the screen, and we'll read through verses number 15 through verses number 17, all right? Uh, if you are physically able, I'd like to invite you to stand as they put this on the screens. Uh, Exodus chapter number 20, verse number 15 through 17. Notice what the Bible says in Exodus 20, verse 15. It says, you shall not steal. You shall now got, not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servants, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Basically, we see three commandments here. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Thou shalt not covet. We're going to dive into these here this morning. Shall we have a word of prayer? Dear gracious and heavenly Father, Lord, as we come to you, gathered together as your people to worship, uh, to share testimonies, to dive into your word, Lord, I pray that we would not look at these commandments, Lord, as grievous or difficult or burdensome, but Lord, I pray that we would see them as something that you in your grace have brought to us so that we can experience life as you designed for it to be lived. And truly, Lord, these can be conduits of grace in our lives for us to be able to experience the best of what you have for us in this world. 
I pray that you would minister to our hearts through your word. I pray that you would encourage us where we need to be encouraged. I pray that we would be challenged and strengthened to grow in areas, Lord, that you want to develop us. I pray that your word would do a work, Lord, that maybe even our flesh cannot do in and of itself. Lord, we love you. We thank you for the gift of a local church body. I pray for those who are joining us online virtually. I pray that this message would continue to be a blessing to them and those who have gathered here in person. I pray that we would fully experience all that you have for us today. Lord, we love you. We thank you for what you have done and for what you will continue to do. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated here at this time. Well, we're going to dive right in this morning, so let's start in verse number 15. The Bible tells us in Exodus chapter number 20, verse number 15, uh, you shall not steal, all right? This is pretty basic. It's something that we teach our children from a very young age. Uh, maybe some of us have stories from when we were a kid and we were standing in line at a grocery store and there's those tempting little candies all around. And I'm sure if we were to be honest, at some point, uh, maybe either our children or maybe even ourselves had a time where we were tempted to be like, you know what? I don't think anybody will notice. I'm going I'm to go for one of these at five or six or seven years old. We've been in those situations before and uh, those are a temptation why because from the earliest age stealing is something that you know can be a temptation verse number 15 you shall not steal Ephesians chapter number 4 verses 28 says this anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer notice this but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. And so what the Bible is telling us in Ephesians is saying, hey, not only should you not steal, I want you to see the focus here, not only should we avoid stealing, but we should replace that with actually working hard, being diligent to the point that we actually have extra so we can share with those who have need so they don't have to steal. And that's what this passage is teaching us, which brings us to our first thought this morning, and that is this. Number one, don't steal. Be diligent, all right? If you're taking notes, you can drop that down. Don't steal, but be diligent. Uh, my brother and I were talking last night, and maybe some of you have seen on Netflix, there is this documentary called McMillions. How many of you are familiar with this or you've seen this come up? It's a couple of you have raised your hands. Basically, it's a documentary uh, all about how McDonald's, you, how many of you remember this, the Mon Monopoly game at McDonald's? And if you get all the pieces to the Monopoly game, you would win, you know, a million dollars or whatever. If you've not seen the documentary, you may not know this, uh, but for about a decade, nobody won that game. Nobody ever got a million dollars. You say, what happened? It was actually a massive conspiracy, not by McDonald's, but by a marketing agency and a marketing individual who was actually, they were in charge of marketing for McDonald's and they were in charge of creating the pieces that would go out to winners. And to make a long story short, if you want to spend you know, six hours of your life, watch the documentary. Uh, but if you don't, basically, long story short, the guy who was in charge of marketing for that McDonald's campaign was stealing the million-dollar pieces. <laughs> and nobody ever, for a decade, 10 years, nobody ever won that. And so basically, I shouldn't say nobody. He worked it out to where the people who won were all related to him. How convenient. <laughs> 
And so basically through a long, you know, kind of the FBI ended up getting involved. It took them several years to figure out what was going on. Uh, but there was this one family uh, that ended up, you know, just happenstance winning every time. And they weren't connected by last names. And so it took them a long time to figure this out. But if you're here today and you always wondered, why didn't I win the Monopoly million dollar money? This is why you didn't win. Somebody was cheating. And if they weren't, you, one of you, pro I'm sure, I'm sure, I'm sure, one of you would have won it. I mean, I just, I'm, just, I'm just convinced of it. Here's a guy, and basically what's crazy is when it was all said and done, he didn't really get a whole lot out of it. I mean, he personally made maybe a couple million dollars or whatever, but he had to make sure other people were paid off and all these things. In the meantime, these entire companies, there's a marketing agency, a publications agency, worth billions of dollars that all kind of, they literally folded. The stock for the marketing company went from $100 to $1 in literally a matter of a couple of days. Why? Because there was one man who was like, you know what? I'm stealing. And rather than be diligent in a way that would allow him to increase his salary or increase his earnings, he was, I mean, literally thousands of people lost their jobs. Tons of people were, you know, stripped of, you know, the opportunity to be able to move forward. Why? Because of one man's stealing. Psalms chapter number 128 verse 2 says this, You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed. Now, here's what's interesting. That word blessed means happy. It means fulfilled. It says when you eat the fruit of your labor of your hands, you'll be happy. Do, do you realize that there is, a, there is a kind of happiness, there is a kind of satisfaction that only comes from really working hard? How many of you have had this sensation before? You work hard at something, you're diligent at something, and you get done and there's just this sense of, man, satisfaction. There's this sense of, man, it feels good to have put in the work and to reap the benefits of it. And, and there really is. And, and for some of you, man, we've all had times where even things like, you know, mowing the grass, you get done and you, you step back and you look at it and you think, man, it feels good to just have that done. And we've all had that sensation before where we work really hard at a project, we really give ourselves to it, and then the, it, it, it comes through, it's done, and we sit back and we say, man, that feels good. Why? Because God designed us as human beings to experience a kind of happiness, a kind of fulfillment. Why? When we're being diligent. Rather than cutting corners, rather than cheating on this and stealing this, there's just a satisfaction when, man, we put our nose to the grindstone, we work as the way God ordained us to work, we are designed to work. Some people say, no, work is a product of the fall. You know, it's all because of Adam and Eve's sin that we have to work. No, work was made before the fall. Work, a job was given to Adam before he ever sinned. Work is woven into the DNA of what we're designed to do. Can I say this? If you are physically able, there is something we're designed to work. We're designed to be diligent. There's something fulfilling and satisfying when we're leaning in to what God designed for us to do. It's so easy in the culture in which we live to become very lazy, to just become very apathetic. And as we've talked about in the past, there are times to balance these things. There is such thing as workaholism and trying to find our identity and satisfaction in our achievements. And that's an extreme to one side. And on the other side, there's the extreme of apathy and laziness. And yet, in the middle, there's this place where we work as unto the Lord, we are diligent as unto the Lord, and God allows us to experience a unique grace. He allows us to experience a unique happiness that comes, a satisfaction that comes in just working hard at something, at figuring something out and really going for it. 
One person said it this way, diligence is the mother of good fortune. Sometimes we're like, man, why is that guy always so lucky? Why is that lady, why does they always seem good things seem to be happening to them? Sometimes the reason that takes place is because those people just work harder than you. Just simple as that. I'm not saying all the time, but oftentimes, oftentimes, it's just they're less lazy. They work harder, and we understand there are different types of work. There's blue-collar work and white-collar work. There's work that involves with your hands, and then there's work that involves with your mind. We are are all wired to maybe work in different ways, but the reality is God calls us to work. I find that too many people are looking for the tricks of the trade rather than just putting in the work to learn the trade. (laughs) Just work. Whatever it is that God's called you to, wherever he has put you, rather than leaning into the temptation to cut corners and cheat on this and steal on this time, the reality is we we are called just to put in the work. It's a good thing to work hard. Man, thank God that we get to rest every once in a while. We get to go on vacations and we get to, you know, do some things that are enjoyable. But can I say this? Work is not a bad four-letter word. (laughs) It's a good thing that, we're, that we are called to work. And I want to encourage you with this. Man, let's just be, whether, whether you're a teenager here today or you're a young adult, let's find a place where we say, I'm going to find some work that I enjoy doing. I'm going to find something that I, I, I really have a passion for. And then I'm just going to get at it and get to work. It's a good thing to be working. And when we're working, there's less of a temptation to steal. There's a lot of different ways in which we can steal. You, do you realize we can steal from our employers because we clock in to go to work and we, are, you know, we have an agreement that we're going to work maybe for eight hours and then you know, all of a sudden we, you know, we kind of fudge a little bit on all of a sudden you know, an hour goes by, two hours goes by and we really haven't done any real work. We're just kind of going through the motions of something. In some regards, that, that could be construed as stealing from an employer. Why? Because we're being compensated for something that we're not doing. There's an agreement that's been made. This This is what I'm agreeing to do, but that's not being done. And that can be a form of stealing. There's a lot of ways in which we can steal. It's not always just, you know, going down, you know, to the local mall and stealing. I remember one time watching... Uh, I think it was a Dateline or Nightline special, something like that, was showing how shoplifters would go in. I remember watching how this one lady, she was really clever about how she she could literally steal an entire television and she'd put it in her skirt between her legs and she'd waddle out with televisions between her legs. Real clever. And I literally, this went on for weeks, stealing televisions, you know, and this one. Not all stealing looks like that, is what I'm trying to say. Why? God calls us to be diligent calls us to be diligent. So, number one, don't steal. Rather, let's be diligent. Let's notice verse number 16. Notice verse number 16. It says here, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Okay? Now, sometimes this is referred to as, you know, uh, don't lie. And I, I don't, I, let, me, let me just take this a step further. While lying in a general form is probably unhealthy and bad, That's not specifically what this passage is specifically teaching. This is specifically saying that you should not lie about another person. That's specifically what this is teaching. It's saying do not lie about the character of another. Specifically within the context of a legal matter. Don't 
bear false witness. Don't lie about someone else's character. Do not gossip about someone else. Proverbs 12 verse 22 says this, the Lord detests lying lips, but he delights in people who are trustworthy. Which brings us to our next thought this morning, and that is this, number two. Not only do we see don't steal, be diligent. Based on these verses, we see number two, don't lie, be honest. Specifically about other people. It's so easy to gossip about other people. It's so easy to start to kind of twist the way we refer to someone else's character. To lie to, the word the Bible will sometimes use is slander the character of another individual. We speak about them in ways that are less than flattering because it's not the way we would do something. It's not the way we would see something. And so we see this, this, this uh, commandment to don't lie, don't, don't bear false witness about the character of someone else. Be careful about this. Be careful. There was a study done uh, by the University of Massachusetts. This was pretty crazy because they, they did this long study over a long period of time and found that 60% of people, so uh, basically the majority of people lie, get this, at least in the course of a 10-minute conversation, uh, as many as two or three lies in a 10-minute conversation. 60% of individuals. It's pretty startling. And sometimes those are even referring to lies about another individual. And God comes along and he says, hey, you want a healthy, you, you want a healthy relationship? You want to be able to move through this life in the most efficient way possible? God gives us these commandments as, as alignment for how we can experience the life God has for us. He says, one thing that'll really help you, don't go around slandering other people's character. Don't go about lying other people. You say, well, it's not a lie, you know. We want to be careful. Here's a few things that I, why I believe this is important and we'll see through Scripture. Why is it important not to bear false witness against our neighbor? Number one, because it just glorifies God. As we align with His perfect will for our lives, it makes God more honorable. It makes people look at God through our lives as being something, man, this is glorifying to God. Number two, it preserves your reputation. It preserves your reputation. When we come to a place where we just, man, we're, we're really, okay, we're, we're honest about what we say about other people's character. Not only does it help their reputation, can I say this? It helps your reputation. If you will gossip about somebody or slander about somebody else, or if somebody comes to you and slanders somebody else to you or gossips about somebody else to you, can I say this? There's a good likelihood they'll do the same thing behind your back. Because that's their character. That's who they are. And sometimes, yes, when a gossip or a slanderer comes along and bears false witness against a neighbor, yes, sometimes that's something in them, but... I would also ask the question, what makes that person feel comfortable about slandering other people in your presence? That's a good question. I've had a couple, 
I've had a couple of occasions where people have come to me and they're, they, they've said, I, I don't understand, you know, people always are coming to me and, and they're telling me about, you know, things about this person or about that person. I can think of two or three instances over the years and I don't, they would say, I don't know why people always feel comfortable coming to me, telling me about what's going on with all these people and, and in the back of my head I'm thinking, that, that's a good question. Why do all these people feel so comfortable coming to you to slander other people? That's a great question. They were seeing it as a badge of honor, you know. I'm, I'm just, you know, I'm somebody who, a guru that can help these people out. No, there's something about your character that makes slanderers and gossipers feel comfortable. So if you find everybody's, yeah, everybody's just willing to come to me and talk to me about this and talk to me about that, that might not be a badge of honor. So not only does it preserve their reputation when we don't slander. Can I say this? It preserves your reputation. It glorifies God. It preserves your reputation. Number three, it creates and cultivates loyalty. Man, I'm telling you what, a buddy of mine who has been through, he's a pastor, has been through a lot of transitions in his ministry and he's been slandered by, believe it or not, even religious individuals and pastors pretty difficultly, pretty hard. And he posted on his uh, Facebook page last week, he said, if you're waiting for me to criticize my critics, you'll be waiting a long time. Think about that. If you're waiting for me to criticize my critics, you'll be waiting a long time. And I know this guy very, very well. And the reality is, even in private, he does not criticize the very people who are criticizing him. You say, what, why, why is this? Be, the reality is it creates loyalty when there's an individual and every time you get around them, they're like, I'm not going to criticize even the people who are criticizing me. It, it breeds just this sense of loyalty. Number four, it develops trust. There's just, when you know there's a person and they always speak well of the people around them, it just cultivates a spirit of trust. I'll say this lastly. This is, this is surprising. I was reading some stuff along these lines this week dishonesty actually release when we're when we're telling a lie it actually releases a stress hormone in our physiology did you know this this is one of the reasons lie detector work is because of the our heart rate and all this happens that's why that's why there is such thing as a, a lie detector test because when we lie there are stress hormones that are released into our bloodstream that increase our stress levels. We've talked in the past about the negative impact of stress. So if we find ourselves in a 10-minute conversation lying three times, even if it's on a subconscious level, do you realize that those stress hormones are being released into your bloodstream and you are literally a more stressed out person because of your lies? <laughs> It's not just that it hurts the other person's character, whether you realize it or not, whether it's on a conscious level or a subconscious level, you're actually physiologically hurting yourself. There are all kinds of diseases that are attached to high-induced stress levels. And one of the things that increases our stress levels is lying. And so not only is it good for those around us, it's good for us. Warren Buffett, how many of you are familiar with Warren Buffett, one of the richest men uh, in the world? Uh, they call him the Oracle of, forget now, the, the city, he's Omaha. That's where he's from, Omaha, Nebraska, the uh, Oracle of Omaha. I think somewhere worth around $100 billion. He had this to say, 
He said, honesty is an extremely expensive gift. Honesty is an extremely expensive gift. He said this, don't expect it from cheap people. (laughs) Why? Because it, it, it takes something to be honest. Take something to be honest. Don't steal, be diligent. Don't lie, be honest. Let's notice verse number 17. Verse number 17, we'll move on. Don't covet your neighbor's house. Don't covet your neighbor's wife, his servants, his, uh, his ox, his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's, all right? So we've seen so far, don't steal, be diligent. Don't lie, be honest. Uh, let's give you a third one. James 4, chapter number 2 says this. You desire, but you don't have, notice this, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight, which brings us to our final thought this morning, and and that is this, number three, all right? Number three, don't covet, be content. Don't covet, but be content. Uh, I want to define for a moment coveting because I think there's some misconceptions as to what coveting is and isn't, all right? So let's start with just defining coveting for a moment. Coveting is not, man, I'd really like that. How many of you have seen a vehicle driving down the road and you think, man, I'd like that? Can I say this? You saying as you're driving down the road looking at a cool truck or a cool car thinking to yourself, man, that'd be cool to have. I'd like that. That is not coveting, okay? That's just acknowledging you like something. That's, that's not, that, that is not what's being talked about here. So, you know, when your neighbor is uh, walking his ox <laughs> down the street and you think, man, I'd really like that ox. <laughs> to use the biblical language here. You are not coveting by saying, man, I'd really, I'd really like that donkey. <laughs> no, it's not that. Can I say this? I'll even take it a step further. If we were to find this, it's not even saying, now we got to be, this is where it starts getting nuanced. It's not, coveting is not even saying, I'd want that. That's not even coveting, Okay. To be driving down the road and seeing a truck and think, man, I I want that. Even that in and of itself is not intrinsically coveting. So let me give you kind of a pure definition of what actual coveting is. It's not I'd like that. It's not I'd want that. Here's what it is. It's I need that to be happy and content. That is coveting. If I don't get that truck, I just can't be content. And there's this angst in your soul because, oh, God, why aren't you, I, don't know, I, just, I want that truck. I need that truck in order to be content, to be happy. And if I don't have that truck, I can't be happy. If I don't have that car. You see, it, it, coveting is not just I want a TV. It's I, it's I need that TV. <laughs> it, it's not like I want a phone. It's I need that phone. It's not just, I'd want a car or a truck. I, I need that car in order to be satisfied. Not just, I want a house. It's like, I need that house to be happy and content. There's a difference. Do you see this? Now, I realize it's a fine line. Now, if we focus too much on, I'd like this, I'd like this, I'd like this, eventually, there's a, there is a progression to this. If, if, we're, if we start focusing all the time on all the things we want, all the things we want, all the things we want, eventually, we fixate on that. Eventually, it will become an obsession. And that's why we've got to even be careful on what we fixate on about the things we want rather than being you know, filled with gratitude on the things we already have. Because you fixate and obsess too much on the things you want, and before you know it, it is, it is creating a craving, an obsession, where all of a sudden our soul, we need it to feel okay, to feel satisfied, to feel content. 
How many of you are familiar with the book Robinson Crusoe? It was an old book. Maybe some of you had to read that, you know, in grade school. It was Daniel Defoe's book where the man gets stuck on the island. And uh, there's a whole book about it. Well, in the story, after months of this Robinson Crusoe being shipwrecked on this island, he comes across an old chest, like a treasure chest of sorts, that had washed up from the ship that had gone shipwrecked. And in it, he finds a Bible in the sword. And after reading it for some time in the book, Robinson Crusoe, this is a line that Daniel Defoe wrote from the character Robinson Crusoe. He says, he says, as I'm sitting here, he's writing his journal, I'm learning to look more upon the bright side of my condition. Remember in the story, he's trapped on this island. I'm learning to look more on the bright side of my condition and less upon the dark side. He says, I'm learning to think upon what I enjoy rather than what I, and I want. And he says, this has given me some secret comforts that I can hardly express them. Now, notice this. This was good. Here's this man trapped on the island, this character, and he says, I have noticed that discontented people cannot enjoy what God has given them. Get this. Discontented people cannot enjoy what God has given them because they covet something that he has not given them. And that's what this passage is teaching. That's why we're not supposed to covet our neighbor's house. We're not supposed to covet our neighbor's things. We're not supposed to covet our neighbor's spouse. Why? Because of this. Because discontented people cannot enjoy what God has given them because they're obsessed and coveting over all the things he hasn't given them. And there's no joy. He goes on to say, all of our discontentment about what we want spring for, from a lack of thankfulness for what we have. Let that sink in for a moment. All of our discontentment about what we want springs from a lack of thankfulness for what we have. We are not miserable because we, because we don't have what we want. You know why we're miserable? Because we don't enjoy what we have. You say, no, I'm miserable because I want that and I don't have it. No, you're miserable because you're not enjoying what you do have. You say, well, prove it. I'm telling you what, I've been to several third world countries and I'm going to just be honest with you. For the most part, people in third world countries are happier than Americans. They just are. I'm just, that's just... They have so little when it comes to the form of material possession. Why? Because there is this sense where it's easier for them to just enjoy what they do have. See, as Americans, we have all this technology, we have all these commercials, we have all this marketing tells us, telling us what we don't have, what we don't have, what we should have, what we need, all this stuff. Third world countries, they're not, they're not kind of bombarded with that the same way we are. We don't get all the, they don't get all the commercials and the marketing. Why? Nobody's marketing to them. They don't have any money to get from them. They don't market to them, they don't give commercials to them. There's nothing they can get from them. As Americans, they want our money. So they market to us. They tell us we're discontent. They tell us we don't have this or we need to buy that or have those things. And because of that, we are primed in our psychology to focus on what we don't have. And so we tend to be more miserable than people who have far less because they are not being primed psych psychologically to focus on all the things they do not have. And that's what God's getting at here. Our discontentment about what we want springs from a lack of thankfulness for what we have. First Timothy chapter number six, verse six says this, but godliness, but godliness with contentment is great gain. 
You say, I want to be more happy in this life. Can I say this? If God's given you a bigger house and nicer cars and cooler vacations, that's awesome. But can I remind you of something? That you do not need those, your, your soul, the way God designed you, you do not need those things to be satisfied and content. You need godliness with contentment is great gain. I'll say it this way. Let me give you a little just practical thing as we're wrapping up. Replace your expectations with appreciation. I've been, I've been working on this myself lately. I've been journaling this, this thought over and over and over and over again, just trying to push this deep into my own psyche. I'm trying to get to a place where expectation becomes a psychological trigger for appreciation. So when that triggers in my mind, this, I want this, or I, this, that, that becomes a psychological trigger that says, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be more appreciative. And allow that expectation to trigger appreciation and gratitude. Replace your expectation with appreciation and your whole life will change. Your whole life will change. I'll say it this way. The way you experience life will change. The way you perceive life will change. Number one, don't steal, be diligent. Number two, don't lie, be honest. Number three, don't covet, be content. So, as we kind of wrap up this series on these moving through Exodus 20, on these Ten Commandments, I want to remind us with this thought as we kind of wrap this up, that obedience is really God's pathway to the life you really want. We, we have a lot of ways that we frame obedience to God in our minds. Oh, obedience is God's way of making me miserable. <laughs> Obedience is like the hardest way to live life. Can I just say this? Obedience really is just God's pathway to the life you really want. Can we at least admit we're not as smart as God? Anybody else willing to admit that? At least, you know, I'm, I'm probably not as smart as God. <laughs> All right, a couple hands. Why? Here's what obedience is. Obedience is just God's pathway to the life you really want, whether you realize it or not. When God throws these things out here, don't covet. He's not saying don't covet because he wants you to, you know, have a, a, an inferior donkey. It's not, he's saying don't covet because the reality is whether you have, you know, a little donkey or a bigger donkey, you can be happy in your soul with either if you learn to be content with it. That, that, it's, what the, it's what God's saying is like the, the things that you really want in life on a soul level, your soul cravings are not anchored to your physical possessions. He's trying to help you transcend the physical realm and say that to get experience all that God has for you, joy and peace and hope and love, the things that your soul was designed to thrive on. See, the world's going to tell you you need this car as opposed to that car. And I'm not saying that either car is intrinsically right or wrong, but when your heart begins to lean in a direction, I need this and I need those things, you're just swallowing a lie that in the end will make you less content with the life you have, regardless of what car you drive around in. 
And God says, I want you to transcend the physical realm and I want you to be able to experience all that I have for you, all of the joy, all of the peace, all of this experience that he says, I've created you to have and I don't want you to have a mindset that tells you the lie that you need lesser things in order to experience these grander things. And this is why God gives us, obedience truly is the pathway to the life you really want. And so he gives us these things to help guide us along the way. And I hope that something that we talked about over these past few weeks will just really resonate in our minds and say, God, you have what's best for me. You want what's best for me. And by your grace, I want to experience all that you have. Let's have a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. And Lord, we realize that you have shared this wisdom with us. Not to hurt us, but you've shared this wisdom with us because you want what's best for us. And so, Lord, I ask, Lord, and I pray that you would allow us to be a people, Lord, that experiences all the, all the wonderful blessings that you have. And, Lord, may we not allow the enemy to rob us of those spiritual blessings, the fruit of the Spirit, the, the joy and the peace. And may we not be robbed of it by so much of what this secular world tells us is important, but allow us to experience it as we align with your will for our lives. I pray that you would bless the remainder of this service as only you can.